This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to PX54 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by co-founder of the PX podcast, Peter Jewell. Always good to be here with you, Jess. A reminder as always to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and more information and links to our guests. I'm very excited, humbled and honoured to be joined by National Director of Urban Design at Tract, Orlando Harrison. Everyone's just rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> Orlando has 20 years experience across urban design and architecture and is passionate about cities and the way we as people interact with them. Orlando adopts a sustainable precinct approach to urban strategy, urban design and development planning. Now, Orlando is also just a truly lovely human being. From my very first day at Tract, Orlando has been an incredible role model for good people management and communication. He's a highly sought after urban designer who incorporates innovation in all that he does and is a truly exceptional communicator. Welcome, Orlando. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Peter. How was that for an intro? Well, I'd like to say I'm humbled to be invited onto Planning Exchange, but the rest <laughs> of it sounded like it was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, you started your career as an architect and moved into urban design. Can you tell us a little bit about this and the career path prior to arriving at Tract? Yeah, look, it's, it, it, I was um, taken by architecture uh, at school and university and went through um, University of Adelaide Architecture School. And I love architecture. I've got a real passion for good design of all sorts. But there was a bit that was sort of missing, I think, in terms of architecture, certainly my architecture um, education. And it was really around people. Um, and I think that probably played out. I, I went to work for uh, a number of great architectural firms and worked under some seriously good um, uh architects who taught me everything I know and and think um, and then I found that architecture whilst I loved it and I love talking about it and looking at it and taking it in and discussing it that there was sort of a people or a social bit missing. Now you worked under uh, PX52 guest Coast to Kaiser. I did. At DKO. Yes yeah, yeah I worked with Coast for quite a few years at DKO and uh, he taught me an incredible amount about architecture and I think about cities as well, which was yeah really valuable. Would you say, um, Orlando, that urban design is like a hybrid between town planning and architecture? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I mean, we get asked this a lot, and I think uh, certainly at the time I studied architecture, urban design wasn't necessarily a, a, a thing, or it certainly wasn't a stream that you could choose at that point. Probably shows my age a bit. Um, but it's, I think that's exactly what it is. It's a, we often refer to it as a sort of a specialist generalist. Um, it brings together parts of planning, parts of architecture, parts of social planning, parts of um, you know, engineering. And, and that's, I think, what drew me to it was all those bits come together in the sort of gray areas between planning, architecture, um, development. So, so with, a, I guess, a huge um, listener base of planners, do you want to just explain a little bit about what an urban designer does day to day? It's <laughs> a very good question, Jess. <laughs> we could be here a while. Uh, yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's the translation um, between planning and design. And, and, and I guess I, I'm referring to architecture, but engineering design, um, broadly design of, of the a built environment. I think it's it's got equal parts planning in there. Um, 
And certainly urban design doesn't exist without a really good understanding of the nuances of planning and, and you know, the, the, the different parts of town planning, as we call it in Australia, be they statutory or strategic? Do, do you think um, the emergence of urban design was a reflection of <clears throat> planning losing its way a bit in city spaces? Yeah, I, I think that's I think it's probably fair. And, and to the same point, I think the same for architecture in some ways. I think urban design came about because there was something missing between a few of those professions. And, and that's not a bad thing as our professions evolve. But there's there's a part of planning that um, that maybe doesn't get as flexible when it relates to design. And, and that's I know that's always been a challenge for, for town planning. Mm. Urban design was an offshoot of you know planning and architecture. <clears throat> what potential offshoots are there of urban design? Do you think? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. And, I mean, this and evolution of city development professionals. Yeah, is there further specialisation? Do you think? I think there is, mm. and I think it's happening as we speak. I mean, I think it's it's happening as um, people specialise and seek more. Um, specialist skills um, and nuances and some of that's related to I guess the complexities of what we all do if we're related to cities data it's related to data and the the, the sheer amount of information that perhaps we're um, we're interacting with so I think there's more specialization there's things like placemaking um, in some ways a part specialization of urban design Um, engagement as well absolutely Mm. yeah engagement um, the the whole the the pop-ups, oh sorry, the pop-ups, the new businesses that are starting to look at how they deal with data and cities' data. How does data influence what you do? That's a good question. Uh, look, I think it's, uh, we've probably had a lot of discussions about this lately, just in how we deal with data. And I guess there's that whole discussion around, um, you know, how does data and um, technology generally um, do some people out of a job? And, and how does it contribute perhaps to more of a, a focus in some people's role? So I think we um, deal with more and more cities' data, I'll call it that, on so many different levels day to day, and we have access to it. I think the real skill is then knowing what to do with it. Well, how does it improve outcomes? Well, I think, I think understanding issues. I think quite often, you know, typically maybe designers said, well, here's an issue, and, and, and if you are... Um, ask the question, it'd be, why do you think that's an issue? Well, you know, gut feel tells me it's an issue. Now I think we have a lot more data to tell us where those issues are or challenges or or changes in our demographics. And also around um, people movement, I think, and the way we as human beings use our cities. I think that's another real opportunity with the data at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I think the way we understand our cities broadly is much, much more nuanced um, and informative than it's ever been. And that can only be a good thing. It just then means we need to understand how to use that information and, and interpret it and, and design for it, I guess, plan for it. It's interesting you say that, Orlando, because some of the models we look at are sort of uh, Renaissance Italy and places like that. And they were developed a long time ago, obviously. And so when you say we now know more than we ever did, did we lose a lot of things and then just rediscover them? Well, you've hit on a a passionate topic of mine, which is we've forgotten a lot of good things. Um, 
through the time. I, I think there's certainly be a point when, if you look at the, the previous century and the development of our cities, and all of our Australian cities are very recent, where we forgot a whole lot of um, intelligent thinking and ways of doing and developing cities. Where did it go wrong? What time was it the introduction of the modernist, the Bauhaus movement? Uh, it was a big topic, yeah. I, look, I, I mean, we're... Not putting you on the spot. No, most... But <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think most commonly you'd say, um, and it, it's not that the, the vehicle, the private vehicle sent us down a different path, although I think it did in many ways, but I think that came along at the time of modernism and, um, and looking at the way culturally our cities change and the, the, the rise of the suburbs. Perhaps, you know, the old older um, cities have always had suburbs, they're just in a different form. So I, I think it's, I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. I think change is fabulous in our cities. It's just how we adapt to it. And I think we're adapting to the change with the cars and private vehicles in our cities. We're adapting now to something that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago in many ways. And how do we plan for adaptability and I guess the rough edges within urban design? How do we ensure that what we're doing isn't too uh, clinical, I guess, longer term? Yeah, yeah too stiff. In, in some ways, that's one of the challenges, I think, for urban design interacting with the planning um, side of things and, and the planning scheme, I guess, is how do you build some adaptability into planning schemes and planning strategies that... Um, that enable us to adapt and, and perhaps be a bit more resilient and robust. Um, and in many ways, that's the challenge, I think, for planning from, from a designer's point of view is, is how do you do that over time? We know change is happening much far more rapidly. Um, this is a problem, isn't it, Orlando? Because adaptability is a nice concept, but... Um, you think about the amazing changes that have happened in the last 20, 30 years with technology. Now, in the 1970s, high-tech was a fax machine. Mm. So we are now shifting at a rapid pace. So the idea that you can build in adaptability for a future that's very unknown, isn't that just good basics? <clears throat> isn't that just good basic design? Well, it should be, and I think you would say absolutely that's got to be at its core and, and in many ways good, considered planning, design, thinking will always should always be at the core of those things. But I think coming back to the question around data is we have more and more information on how we're changing uh, and so the ability for planning particularly to be able to adapt to that I, I think is a real challenge. I, I don't, I don't, certainly not saying we have the answers, but it's... I think we're collectively being forced, don't you think we're being forced to, to adapt more and more? I would think that the suburbs of Australian cities in the 1970s are not that different to the suburbs of Australian cities today. Mm. And that is where the most, most people live. Mm. So their urban environments haven't changed. Mm. I'll, I'll be controversial on that, Jess. Sure. Um, I think we get focused far too much on the inner city and... Yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. But that's true. for most Australians, suburban life is unchanged. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. So data, uh, to me... Well, I think... Uh, it's interesting, I love it, but I think we are losing sight of what the reality is of our cities. Yeah, I, I think... Well, I'll challenge you on that. The, I, I think the streets and the houses and the, the block pattern, perhaps what we might call the fabric, if you want to use urban design jargon, hasn't changed. I, I, th I wonder whether the issues are changing. And if I think of 
of you know my life where I live um, you know my street and my house um, is in many ways it was built in 1920 and it's been um, altered since obviously um, but the changes in the way we think about things like water waste and energy I think are really interesting changes to um, that are coming into the way we live and and that might be me being biased with those sorts of issues but I think so sometimes the the actual built fabric, yeah, absolutely hasn't changed. And many of us don't want it to change, I think, in some ways, do we? That's Jess? it. Yeah. That's it, 100%. So, Orlando, why isn't there more experimentation in new communities and in brownfield development? Well, I think, uh, I think there's an aspiration from uh, the industry, be it from our side, which, you know, the consultant side, um, to test things and, and use research and, and use some of that data and information. I think there's an aspiration from the development side. I think in the end, the practical reality is you've got serious amounts of capital on the line and the ability for us to be able to prove an uplift or a benefit or a net benefit to that particular issue that we might be looking to experiment on, be it um, different types of land use, different types of open space, those sorts of things, I think is is interesting. In the end, it's a risk management, uh, mm. I, I think, is the limitation. But, but before you even start on brownfield development sites, you've got to have structure plans and you've got to get it through the local authority or the Department of Planning. There's a great deal of conservatism and those levels that maybe stifle a lot of this experimentation, I would think. I get the capital side, yeah. but I suspect that before you even start on a project, the parameters are already set. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. And I think, uh, you know, I've got this this theory that uh, may or may not be true, but it, it, that great things in our cities, when they're happening with development, anything in the built environment, they generally come down to one person crashing through barriers and crash and, and persisting and, and there's always a passion there for in some certain area. And generally you'll see there's one person and they'll drag along a team, whether it's a, a development side or a um, public sector side, there's one person that really takes the, the bull by the horns and makes it happen. And, and, and I think champion, that's champion. Absolutely, really, yeah. yeah. And and it stands true for all sorts of different great changes that we've seen, whether it might be a great development or a great um, strategy mm. someone has championed it yeah so that sort of feeds into this um, conversation around communication and how we can improve our communication you're an incredibly good communicator in that space I would Gosh. say <laughs> and there'll be a lot of people that would agree with that <laughs> again you're rolling your eyes but how do you I guess what are your what are your tips and tricks around communication? Because it is an incredibly important piece and it's something that not everyone is good at. So how do we communicate these, um, I guess, left of field ideas yeah. to try and um, change the way our cities are planned and designed? Yeah, I, look, I think that the basis of it, as you, as you said, Peter, is, is good considered thinking. I, I don't think anything replaces that. Um, but there's been plenty of um, fabulous ideas that have failed because they weren't able to be communicated. And I think it's a really good question, Jess. Yeah, how, how do professionals who are distrusted by mm -hmm. many parts of the community? Mm -hmm. How do I think it's an excellent theme we should pursue? Definitely. How do you communicate? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, thoughts. An, it's an undervalued skill because I think having trained in desi- broadly in design, I think there's many designers who are fabulous at what they do but can't communicate. It's not that they can't communicate the design, but they can't communicate to the audience. Sometimes the audience might be the wider community or the broader um, uh, broader community the benefits and so and I think a lot of that is I mean we talk about collaboration a lot I know it's an overused word um, and people um, misunderstand collaboration a lot I think I think they mistake collaboration for communication and collaboration is not about telling people what you want to do it's actually about working with people to understand what they want and need and what their challenges or issues are I think just that point of communication, people need examples. Mm. Uh, people love precedence. And mm. we've got, you know, Grand Designs Australia mm-hmm. is very popular. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. those shows, the makeover shows. Yep. Good but communicators. I, brilliant. Yeah. And they take you through the process. I just wonder whether, you know, the Lend Leases of the World or whatever don't have similar programs mm-hmm. showing their bigger communities mm-hmm. from outset and, and, and being honest. So, so is it taking people along the journey? Yeah, is that and, 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 and I know McLeod in the UK has done something like that with the unit development and something like that. This is how we do the communities. Mm-hmm. This is what we've learned from the past. Yeah. This is what we like overseas. I think there's an audience for that. And, and I think, going back to your point about the suburb, existing suburbs, I think the biggest audience for Australian cities is in our existing suburbs. Yes, in, in new communities or greenfield sites, brownfield sites, larger developments. But I think the the real battleground... Is the appetite is out there? It, well, I think the appetite's there, but it's the communication. It gets communicated poorly. It's a lot of fear. And I guess, you know, that whole movement of the missing middle um, across our cities and just discussing how do we just have better functioning suburbs where people want to live you don't have to give away all your all the things you value in your suburb mm, mm. but but there is a shortage of good designers i feel when i'm driving around yeah um yeah melbourne i just look at a lot of developments and i think oh that's awful yeah absolutely because you because we're working within a system that isn't perhaps um encouraging that innovation Going back to that point before, I think it's about communicating again to those um, authorities and those people to try and break down those um, those long-held desires on how a, a community or a neighbourhood should look. Yeah, and and also I think the the lack of professionals involved in a in a lot of you know medium density development out there. I mean, mm-hmm. Some of the stuff is just atrocious. Yeah, and I think some of the really good. Um, examples across our cities, and, and I know this is a, a small part of the, so let's say, the Melbourne market and, and the national market, is some of the operators like a Nightingale and, and the groups that are looking into these co-design models because they're rolling up their sleeves and they're getting out there and talking to people in the area that they're proposing to develop in and talking to communities about what they want and need and really understanding it. And, and in many ways, Much as I like Nightingale. Orlando, yes, I think they're a niche player. Oh, absolutely! And they're, yeah. They're, yeah, they're talking. Yeah. They're talking to the converted. Yeah. So yeah. I think the, the 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 real audience is the mass builders. Yeah, but but I wonder whether the metricons that, that those mass builders wouldn't be looking at that model, not the financial and the design model necessarily, but saying, look, we can we can make our model more readily developable 
if we go out and talk to communities about what they're getting and what they need and and how we interact with them. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you to Song Bowden Planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Orlando, a question we asked some guests is um, about computer programs telling us what's good design or not. Uh, and I understand you've looked at the website Scenic or Not. And that is, a, that is a program that people input, they judge things, the computer learns what people like and then can create designs. Mm-hmm. What? How long till computers start telling us what is good design and design ah, for us? Are you going to be out, the you be out of, of a job AI. soon? I'm looking forward to retiring when they, <laughs> when they take over. Uh, look, I, I, I mean... There's universal truths in design. Absolutely. And I think I think design is premised in, in us as humans, what we feel. And, and I, look, I'm a big advocate of a sort of experiential design. And, and by that, I just mean the way we experience cities or streets or buildings or your own home or a room. And I think going back to, you know, architectural um, education, I think... This is about proportions. In, in some, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and these the are long-held... Um, truths in inverted commas um, but I think some of that's missing in architectural education to some degree but that that wasn't your question where I was going was I think the more data we get and the more we have the ability for technology to judge or rate or um, categorize manipulate. places manipulate mm-hmm. it still relies on us to then ascertain what the data is telling us or make a conclusion just on pursuing this we've got avatars which show us what what is a perfect human form and things that are universally liked uh, symmetry and sorts of things like that so we, we can have avatars can we have avatar places and avatar buildings oh, that's a good question i'm looking at jess jess what's, <laughs> you can answer that one um I, I look i think i think i, I think the future is our friend yeah i think the stalling of VR. I think VR's, but you know, virtual reality has been around for a little while in terms of 3D and the experience of places. I sort of see that that it's stalled a bit. I think because it hits its limitations on what you can and can't do with There's it. There's that valley, yes. Yeah. So mm. I, I doesn't answer your question, Peter, at all. But um, I, I think the technology. It's how, it's how you use it. I, I look at people like Neighbourlytics who are doing really interesting work with um, communities data and neighbourhood data. And, and, and the strength there is the ability to capture data, which is in some ways has never been easier. or We've never been better at it, but there's never been more data. But then be, what you do with it. We have to be careful of data because data is not neutral. No, data absolutely. is all biased in some ways. Always. I was so, just about to say that. Yeah. Do you think people are still quite dubious about data and also things like VR? Yeah. People still have this um, this element of you know, sort of just not trusting what they're seeing yeah, despite it being particularly um, And, and rightly so. I think the day we trust data, 
is the day we'll give up. We should always be asking what the data tells us for all the way from, you know, federal election polling mm. <laughs> information down to cities data that we get about pedestrian counts or, um, you know, community likes of a certain place on social media. That's it's, it's not what the data tells us, it's what you extrapolate out of that and, and how you understand the skewing of of data potentially. Okay, well, let's reconvene in 20 years, Orlando. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I suspect by then uh, there will be design programs. Mm. Uh, now, that's the future, going back to the past. Uh, as a profession, does urban design revisit its past efforts with a critical eye? That's a good question. I, I think urban design has a tendency to look to perhaps, say, great, cities of the world and in that way it does it looks back in history and says well you know rome's a fabulous place and madrid's the perfect street scale you know six to eight stories and we hear all this sort of thing so i think it does but i i, I often think it's at a, a very high level and it doesn't scrape the surface of the way people interacted with those cities in the way maybe i didn't explain the question properly but in each profession goes through fashions and fads. Mm. Some are less successful than others. And as a planning profession, we rarely look back and say, mm. God, we stuffed that up. Mm. Or the unintended consequences of these policies were yes, those okay. yeah, yeah. So uh, not so much Rome, um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, suburbs, uh, perhaps? And, 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 uh, yes, like the uh, urban design is a relatively new profession. Mm. Um, but looking back, like, well, what did we do wrong at Docklands? What did we do wrong at Southbank? What did we muck up here? Mm. Yeah, look, I think it's... That ability yeah. to self-reflect. Yeah, it's a great question. And there's always um, 2020 vision looking back, reflecting. But something like Docklands, um, you know, I, I think in many ways you'd have to unpack what the drivers were for some of those decisions. I, I personally think Docklands was always going to be a, a 20 year project and halfway through or third the way through, people were seeing a project that was halfway through. Um, and and I'm, I'm not a Melbourneian, I grew up in, in Adelaide, live in Melbourne now. So as, as a slight outsider looking at it, that's just a process that you have to go through with these big brownfield precincts. And I, I don't think that's necessarily well understood. I think a lot of people think that our city is the same as it has been a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. And today it's really just a snapshot. It's changing all the time and rapidly. They say you never go into the same river twice. Yeah, it's... It's, it's always changing and yeah. you're changing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice way to look at the world we live in in the cities but I think that for Docklands I think it's Docklands will mature and and I think Docklands is great in many ways I think there's some terrible bits of Docklands and I don't know that that's diff too different to other mm. most places have things that you like and things that you dislike and you learn from and you learn and from, from. Yeah. Every, yes. not everything can be perfect yes yep yep so just moving on a little bit, um, planning for healthy communities is something that we are very passionate about, particularly mm. at Tract. Um, how do you see the role of urban design in creating healthier cities? Oh, look, I think that I think this is one of the areas, Peter, you're talking about with um, the specialisation is, is, you know, we should be seeking for our planning and design professions to know more and be more interactive with our health and our well-being and that sort of that might be one of the trends we might look back in 20 years time and say god we were all about being healthy and we really didn't know what we were doing but 
I think urban design is now about how do we take some of those high level aspirations for health and wellbeing and translate them down to something like Docklands or a, or a Fisherman's Bend or a, um, you know, um, other areas, areas in Sydney, you know, Barangaroo. How do you understand health and wellbeing and healthy cities in terms of those areas as much as new greenfield communities or, or regional towns, you know, regional areas of Australia? Um, again, it's about understanding the issues and, and understanding the local local context, what are, what are the actual challenges, rather than, you know, perhaps putting over what might be national, um, uh, you know, broad issues around, you know, heart-healthy suburbs and, and these sorts of things. It's actually understanding what the real issues are um, on that specific precinct or neighbourhood, and maybe that's about understanding the data or using data to understand that. Now, Jess, you did your Masters in Public Health. Mm-hmm. I'll put something to you just off – I'll ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Much of public uh, – Are you being mu- controversial? No, <laughs> never. M- much of public health outcomes depends on what happens in the household. It doesn't have – less so the built form. I'll just put that out there because we're all about healthy suburbs, da-da-da, but a lot of what's the loss of health in our society is what goes on within the property. But I guess I, I would say to that that it comes down to the environment that you're in. So some of those decisions, yes, you can't control, but some of those decisions you can control. So your location, you know, within five, ten minute walking distance to services or maybe even more than that, even a 10, 15 minute walk, which is probably more realistic, gives you access to public open space, gives you access to services, Um public transport obviously as well as another big one but having those options available to you has a profound impact on your health. I know that but if you look at the suburbs they haven't changed but health outcomes have gone down so the suburbs of yesterday weren't as good as the suburbs of today but health outcomes are much worse. Now I think that's I agree with what you're saying but much of public health is what happens in the household and technology's got a big problem with mm. big part to play. So some of the um, more recent research that's come out of RMIT on this point looks at the differences between living in a place like uh, Tarnish, which is in the Greenfield area of Melbourne, versus living in um, Altona, which is sort of inner to middle ring suburb of Melbourne. Um, the health differences in terms of the economic impact are profound. Is that because so, of the socio-economic effects? I mean, well, do, do, there's, is there's a whole, like for like there's a whole range of different mm. um, aspects that go into that. But I guess what it's saying is that the more access you have to all these services, the more um, the more healthier you are, and healthier the economy is as well as a as a byproduct to that. So it's a really interesting piece of research that's coming out. So sorry, I think we're still a little conversation. I was just thinking, isn't that one of the great challenges for planning? And I guess the question for, for you two is, um, is planning now more susceptible to these big, I'll call them global cha- uh, global trends, Let's some of which you're referring to, which uh, might be around the family unit or socio-demographics or um, cultural values around, if we're talking about healthy, we're talking about, you know, access to services or, um, you know, good diet or the whole gamut of things. Does that interact with planning more than it used to? Because some of the challenges, I guess, that we see as 
as um, planners or designers, I guess, is trying to balance out what you can affect and what you can't. And increasingly, I think these sort of global trends, these cultural changes that are coming through, Australia's not immune um, to many of them. We do have some very specific ones, I think, too, that um, perhaps... I think it's embedded within planning. Yeah. But I also think it's embedded within urban design and landscape architecture as well. There's, you know, it's it's a huge area and it depends sort of which part of health you talk about. I think there's some parts which are far more relevant to It's that physical design. determinism. Obviously, Correct. if you're close to services, Correct. they're going to help. But, but I, I guess the other really um, major component of it is the social connection and um, social isolation that we're seeing. So that sort of comes back to urban design in a lot of ways in terms of how you... How you foster opportunities for social connection, which seems like a really, really simple concept, but it's not something that people fully understand the importance of. It's compared to smoking, I think it's 15 cigarettes a day or drinking 10 glasses of wine per day, the lack of social connection. Well, I'll, I'll, no, give, I'll give you a... I agree, loneliness. <laughs> loneliness is a massive it's problem. Absolutely. It's massive. And uh, density, I would imagine loneliness goes up with density. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and uh, to a certain degree, but then you could also take the um, the differing approach to that, which is the more dense you are, the more opportunities you have for, for, social for interaction, oh, informal interaction. Yeah. Uh, but also, people uh, with more people around have less trust in their surroundings. I so, think that's a like, uh, what, what, when I'm in, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm in an apartment. I don't know anyone on my floor except one lady. But you've got opportunities to. Connect with I think people. it's interesting because there there is an underpinning I've got, I've got, for urban I've, design, which which actually says the more activity in inverted commas, the more people feet on the street in places, the safer it should be. I, I, I and agree the with that. Is. That safety is quite different to the issue of loneliness. Yeah, yeah. So if you put a whole lot of people in an apartment building, you'll have you might bump into people on the lift. Yeah. You might make small ch- talk, but that's not. Yep. That's still loneliness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah. there's, there's, I can see um, some of the people that I work with rolling their eyes as I say this, but I have this passionate topic about um, front fences. I, I think we do ourselves a disservice, just a personal view, on designing particularly new communities without front fences. And the reason is not that I like fences or, or that I think a fence should sit in front of a house. I think, and I think it's borne out that People, you Australians, use their front yards more when there's a fence, and I think there's a very human p- piece to that, which is you feel like there's a delineation between you and someone on the footpath, between your private land, the land you own, um, and the street. And I know that's very different to America. For instance, the US, um, they do use their front yards without a fence. But I think I think it's something we've lost in Australian suburbs. And you go to areas where there's no front fences and there's typically less people using their front yards and the less you use your front yards, the less you talk to your neighbours as a generalisation. It's, I think it's just there's an interesting little piece of research there somewhere. So we need to break down, break away from some of these doctrines that, that we have to enforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So just moving on, um, regenerative planning, that's something you're incredibly passionate about. Do you want to just 
talk to our listeners a little bit about what that is. What, yeah, what does look, that mean? Well, it's yeah, and it's it's really an emerging area, I think. Um, certainly emerging in the work that we've been doing, um, and it's really taking sustainability, um, you know, which has been um, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago, really emerging into the built environment at all um, on all disciplines, and is now uh, I think well and truly embedded in in what we do on many levels. And it basically says sustainability is about doing less bad. And I think we can move beyond that into let's do more good. And, and it talks to those ideas of healthy cities and well-being and, and environmental sustainability, social sustainability. So regenerative is really about saying, how do we have um, a, a building or a site or a community neighbourhood city that regenerates itself and provides as much good it gives back as much as it takes and that might be related to water waste energy and then extrapolated out into you know social interactions and 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 capital financial so it's about taking a bit of a leap over the sustainable doctrine which really says let's try and mitigate bad outcomes and saying we should be aiming for for, for outcomes that benefit our environment at its broadest level and and when you do that yes you get better environmental outcomes and some of them are hard and 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 difficult to do and you come up against barriers and roadblocks particularly with authorities which are typically conservative by their very nature and and that's has risk management and all sorts of things built into it but the interesting part that we start to see is you come into this area where um, the financial um, models turn on their heads and suddenly you've got where typically the market or the community might think high-end sustainability, let's say, or, or, or hard sustainability um, is expensive. It turns it on its heads and actually starts saying we can make money out of all these unintended consequences of being a regenerative community. And I think that's an area that I think um, there's a huge a lot of uh, there's a huge amount of work to be done in there, in that space. There's, there's some really good people um, across Australia working that space. Okay, it's the demonstration it's projects, the public getting on board, Jess. Maybe we could start a TV show. Hmm? <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> we'll have to get some work first. 2020. Hey, all right. I, I think that, that the, the idea of re- regenerative um, planning or design, I think, is coming into its own. I think there's... Um, there's a push, and not just from research or or the sort of consultancy side of things, but um, you know, there's there's serious players in the development industry, lend lease, the phrases, these sorts of people, as well as smaller um, entities who are pushing hard into that space because they recognise the benefit, um, they recognise social licence, you know, the the corporate social responsibility, as well as just also the changing nature of our community, perhaps, mm. and our expectations. Expectations, mm. yep. Yep. And, and sure, that's going to be part of the market or a neighbourhood or a community, but it's not going to be everyone. But increasingly, there's a wider choice of where you can live, how you can live. And, and uh, buildings come and go, um, but places stay and evolve. How We have to have open minds. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? We have to embrace experimentation do you think a bit more be a bit more free i think be inquisitive be more relaxed i think we should be inquisitive relaxed is actually a really interesting um idea for people because i think uh, i think everyone has their own view on or their own experience of of places and our cities and the things we plan or design for i think being inquisitive 
um, and and being a bit courageous. You know, we we're talking about those champions that 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 make great places happen are um, are pretty courageous in in almost all regards. Definitely. So just on um, being inquisitive. How how does your urban design background? Oh, sorry, let me start again. In terms of being inquisitive, how do you see research informing your work? Is that is that something that is considered? And that might be research um, online. It might be academic research. It might be going to seminars and conferences. Is that a big part of what you do? And Orlando, this part of our audience is with the Urban Broadcast Collective, which is a great suite of uh, academics and students so your words are very important now well I th- I, yeah. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> no pressure uh, look I think the I think research is uh, is very topical for um, practices such as ours tracked um, similar practices um, and, and there's a practical element of finding the time in amongst projects and clients and, and how you actually work that into a practice model. And there's been some really interesting work done recently. Um, Hassel and BVN and a number of other firms um, have done it from the architectural side, looking at um, partnerships with um, tertiary education, universities, um, um, groups within those universities to actually make a meaningful contribution to research because often research relies on um, practice to verify, test, review research and vice versa. So I think that the the answer is in partnerships. Um, And I think sometimes we don't stop and consider where um, live projects um, with clients, be they public or private sector, can interact with those research elements to bring a richness to it. Mm. And, and do you think um, there should be indices developed to measure how well citizens enjoy their urban environment? And, and I'm, I do not want to talk about Melbourne, most livable city. Because <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, is, such a, again, that yeah. is such a bankrupt it is. indice. But that, that reflects, just for listeners, uh, the most livable city tag is given to expats they measure it, expats living in a foreign city about their uh, ability to access services. So we need something a lot more down to earth. Yeah, I'm leading you, am I? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, there's lots of indices, and and they all they're all as good as the data they gather or the input. So I think in many ways, part of me says forget them all and and you know just take in your own personal experience. Um, of the places that you use day to day, you know, your local street, your city, your train station, whatever it is. But but that's that's not what you're asking because that doesn't help other people. So I, I think there's um, there'll always be echo chambers for certain areas of data and indices, and and the the livable most livable city is certainly one. Um, that's as you said, flawed in many ways. Oh, in but many it's ways, just completely. It, it's just gained momentum. Politicians love it. Um, I, I think it papers over um, cities resolving some of their big issues. Melbourne's got a huge number of urban issues um, that perhaps don't get solved because we keep telling ourselves we're a livable city. Right. <laughs> we didn't solve it though, did we? No. <laughs> no. Um, so how can we best promote the transmission of good ideas within this industry, do you think? What are your tips around in that space? Oh, I think some of it comes back to communication. I think it's, you know, good communicators get their ideas across. Um, that, you know, there's never been more 
diverse or better methods to communicate design and you know I sort of think to Instagram and Instagram has or things like that have many evils um, and I think of my children growing up and their you know their interaction not yet but at some point with things like Instagram has real challenges but I think from a design point of view um, where so much of it is visual Instagram's an incredible tool for um, not just communicating good design but understanding where the industry is at and what's happening um, I, I, look, I think as an industry, the planning and design industries do an amazing job of talking about issues and um, conferences and seminars. And I, I don't think there's much that's not picked apart and understood. Sometimes it's perhaps not as deep as you might like it to be. And then maybe that comes back to the research part of it. You know, it, it's a bit shallow. And, and sometimes there'll be people that don't want to have that discourse in public. Um, so there's a limitation there. But I, I think the communication is there. Um, and I look day to day, week to week, as a, in a professional practice, the amount of opportunities we have to go to an event on a certain topic, any given topic that might interest us or interact with what we do, there's a plethora. I mean, there's just an incredible range of things. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed in the number of... Um, those those sort of events you can interact with. Much of it gets down to policy, Jess, and which is not really Orlando's planning policy <laughs> field. But you know, there's the dead hand of government, which is uh, stopping a lot of innovation and experimentation. I, I think we can all go to our conferences and seminars, yeah. but but we still have the planning system, planning policies that we had 40 years ago. Even though our society's changed, technology's changed. Uh, economic basis changed. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, that's for another interview. Oh, I, I, and I agree Next with time. that. Just in in, <laughs> in brief, I, I think you know things like uh, Plan Melbourne and its iterations. I, it, they can't keep up, and I think we sometimes don't have the discussion around if they can't keep up. What else do we do? What, what you know, we've got a plethora of authorities across the government doing all sorts of things, some good, some bad, um, and it's no criticism of them, but it's just the ability to keep up and understand. Um, these these big policy movements, smart cities, sustainability, well-being. There's a there's a there's a raft of them that we're falling behind. Are we're you confident of the future? Absolutely. Yeah, with, with I think design? so. Yeah, the sun's come out and it's in the middle of <laughs> Melbourne winter. We should be. Com- I, I I think it's. Yeah, I am. I I think we've never had more tools at our disposal to do great things. We've never understood it better. I think if we say it's hard and it's difficult, we're avoiding it. You know, you you've got to be courageous. You got to be up for the. It's not. It's not a fight. I won't say it's up. You got to be up for the challenge. And the appetite is out there. Do you think? For, I think so. I think mm-hmm. I think there's great people doing mm-hmm. really interesting things, and we should support. I think perhaps one thing the industry can do better is um, collectively support each other in doing interesting, innovative different things rather than perhaps saying well we can't do that or we you know they shouldn't be talking about that let's support each other um, because courageous people will get it done and they'll crash through some of those policy roadblocks or or um, government roadblocks um, so I'm yeah I'm really positive about it um, doesn't mean there's not challenges <laughs> <laughs> now what drives you and what gives you the most joy in your professional life Oh, what drives me? I'd like to say that design drives me, but actually I think it's people. I I think when you see people that are genuinely good and interested in what they do, and I don't care what profession that is, 
they, I, I, I get really excited about people. Um, and out of that comes a good planning or good design or good engineering or good policy. Um, I think, you know, in the end, we're just a bunch of people all sat together in one space, be it a city or a room. Um, so I think that drives me. Um, and seeing good people do great things. And, and often it's allowing people to do great things. Um, with us as a practice tract, we try to allow, encourage people to go out and be inquisitive and push into areas where maybe we're not comfortable and, and be really good at it. Um, so I think, you know, it's, yeah, urban design drives me absolutely cities. Um, but the people, without, without people, we're, we're not much. Mm. And what are you currently reading, watching, or listening that inspires you? Uh, this, is, this is podcast extra. <laughs> this is going to be really geeky because I'm actually reading a um, a Stephen Fry book about uh, I think it's called Mythology, and it's Stephen Fry rewriting the Greek myths. And I have no idea why I picked it. I picked it up in a bookshop in New Zealand, and it caught my eye. And it's fabulous in its geekiness. Um, but it's actually him putting a spin on the ancient Greek myth, which is which I always felt was something that I probably should know. And you hear these names; it's it's it's, it's very funny in a Stephen Fry sort of way. But um. what about you, Pete? Oh, I'm doing a bit on waste at the moment, Jess. And uh, you know, I think that we have to embrace incinerators to get you know high temperature incinerators to get rid of some of the waste. I think the the whole waste. Uh, uh, myth that we've been fed about you know recycling is obviously very important and you know reusing but you know here we were no one knew that most of our recycling was being shipped over to third world countries and that was the dirty secret of the waste industry so I think I think we you know we've got all these aims to have zero waste you know but I think we need to be realistic and I think that's part of this practicality that's got to come back into lots of what we do so there's a range of options. Landfill's okay for some things. High-end incinerators are great for other things. Recycling is good for other things. So uh, apart from that, I'm also reading some great local history. Uh, you know, so I've joined a local hysterical, uh, sorry, historical society. <laughs> of course and I'm, yeah. and, and, uh, I, and I, I just have. And I just love reading that uh, local history and mm. the effort that people go into and just learning about our past and mm. places. Sorry, Orlando, one last question. What is your recommended or go-to urban design publication? Uh, that's a very good question. There's lots of lots of online stuff which I get into. Um, I really love Monocle um, because it's a thing I can hold in my hand. I, I'm a big fan of reading a, a magazine, a book, you know, it's and it's 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 publication values. It's on beautiful paper stock. You know, it's got a real design flair to it. And yes, I'm married to a graphic designer, so I notice those sorts of things. I've been told to notice those sorts of things. <laughs> um, but they have great they have great podcasts um, out of London, out of cities around the world. Um, I think it brings in enough diversity for me that's not just about one particular topic. It's about cities and people and design or all meshed into one. So I think, yeah, Monocle's got that, that sort of flavour that I really like. Orlando, wonderful recommendations. Um, thank you so much for coming along. Um, thank you for having me. And also, listeners, we're part of the Urban Broadcast Collective, so we urge you to have a look. The link is on our site. That's a world of wonderful Australian urban of 
based podcasts. And thank you for listening to our podcast and your busy lives, listeners. Thanks again, Orlando, and thanks, Chess. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.